want to try preaching again from the stage. We won't do it very often, but it's a lot easier than going down. And uh, we'll just see how this works. I, I really do like being able to see in the back, keeping an eye on who's really paying. No. Have you ever had to wait for something bad to happen? A lot of times bad things happen and we have to react. But sometimes you know it's coming and you've got days, weeks, months of sort of agonizing. And so you're, you're caught in a bit of a tension. On the one hand, you, you don't want it to happen because you know it's going to be bad and then you're going to have to deal with it. On the other hand... The tension is killing you. Let's just get it over with. Let the chips fall where they may, right? And so, for instance, maybe you failed a class, and it's going to be a couple weeks before the grades are in. Your parents find out. Maybe it's off at college, and um, so you know that's going to be a difficult conversation at some point. Or maybe, hypothetically, in seventh grade, you've cheated on a math test and got caught, and it's going to be probably a few days before your parents find out. Okay, that did happen to me. Or maybe you're driving in Maryland and you see that flash in your rearview mirror and you know they got you going 43 and a 25, which you thought was a dirt road. It was 35. So that one happened to me too, a lot more recently. Well, what about really serious, difficult things? You know, you know that you're going to be fired when they, your boss finds out that you did something. Or you know you're going to get evicted and you just you don't have anywhere to go and you know that's coming. What about if you've been convicted of a crime but the trial and the wheels of justice grind slowly and so you know you're going to prison but that's off for a while. That can be an agonizing time, terrible feeling. Tom Petty used to sing, waiting is the hardest part, right? And that's true for those of us who lack that virtue, that is patience. But sometimes the waiting is hard, but the actual event is harder. And it's going to be worse. And uh, Just because the wait is over doesn't mean that things are going to improve. In our chapter text for today, Jeremiah chapter 39 The waiting is finally over. Jeremiah has spent the first 29 chapters prophesying all of these awful things that are going to happen to Jerusalem and Judah. And then he spent some time letting the people know that, okay, after that happens, 70 years, there's going to be hope. There's going to be great things in store. But now the awful things happen. John Calvin called this chapter, Jeremiah 39, proof of all of Jeremiah's previous doctrines. In other words, proof that he wasn't a false prophet or a liar. But before we read the text, let's pray for the Lord's uh, understanding. Almighty, eternal, merciful God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word and conform our lives to what we understand, that we may not be displeasing to your majesty. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. 
So let's turn now to Jeremiah chapter 39. The first three verses. It's going to take those of the chapter to describe when and how Jerusalem's walls are breached. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. So you have the setting. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate. You can pronounce those in your head. Three guys with all the rest of the officers of the king of Babylon sat in the middle gate. Can you imagine being involved in an 18-month siege on either side? Either you're attacking and you're pounding away for a year and a half, I'm sure, sporadically, until you make a breach in the wall and send people inside. Or you're on the inside, repelling the attack. And at some point, you figure either your enemy's going to go away, or they're going to break through, or you're going to run out of food and starve. In movies like Lord of the Rings, they have those scenes, but they're set in hours, right? In one day, where they tear down the walls and they're attacking. This is a year and a half that Jerusalem has been starved out. Remember last week's text, the Babylonians withdrew for a time because they thought Egypt was coming up. And so they were going to have to turn, and, but then for some reason the Egyptians never come up. And so Jerusalem is again by itself. It's clear that once the Babylonian army does break through, there's really no fight left. Right? They own the city. The Babylonian leaders, whose names I can barely pronounce, they, uh, they all sit in the middle gate, which is symbolic. Right, They've set themselves up as the new leaders. They are the leaders of this nation now. Now, this account, Jeremiah, he, he's describing it pretty stoically. Right, If you want to read the emotional side of it, Go to the book of Lamentations. Chapter 4 speaks of children begging for food as people who had once eaten delicacies die of starvation, of mothers boiling their own children to eat. It's very difficult to read. And so in one sense, it's a relief. The waiting is over, right? The siege and starvation are done, but... Now Babylon can impose its will on the city and its people. So let's look at the next seven verses. They show how the kingdom is dismantled, verses 4 through 10. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled, going out of the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls. And they went toward the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah in the land of Hamath. And he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. 
The Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city, those who had deserted to him and the people who remained. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. So King Zedekiah has refused to let God save him and his city. And he has defied Nebuchadnezzar, the king who had had him appointed to the throne. Remember that Zedekiah shouldn't even necessarily be king, right? His nephew Jehoiachin had been the king but was taken into exile, uh, Babylonian exile, a decade earlier, along with most of the ruling class of the city. And so Zedekiah was appointed to rule in his place by Babylon, and he reigned for 11 years. Now, if you've been paying attention to the chapters, you've been here for the sermons, uh, Jeremiah tells him, surrender to the Babylonian forces, and if you do, the city will not be burned, and your house will live. But he doesn't heed the advice. Right? And when the Babylonians finally break through the walls, he and his soldiers try to sneak out right under the cover of darkness. And they get away, but they're run down. They're captured. And Nebuchadnezzar is particularly cruel when he catches him fleeing the city. He kills his sons right in front of him. And right before he takes uh, Zedekiah's eyeballs takes his sight and puts him in chains and drags him to Babylon. Imagine just life going dark after 35, 40, whatever, however many years of, of seeing, just the horror and the chaos of that on top of the fact that the last thing you saw was your sons executed. So, of course, after 18 months of assaulting the city, the Chaldeans, which is just an interchangeable term for the Babylonians, pull down the walls, right? And they burn down the palace and the houses, and they round everyone up, and they march them to their new home, this, uh, to live in this foreign land of Babylon. It was in Babylon's best interest to leave someone back, uh, maybe as a buffer from Egypt, uh, but certainly, you know, somebody needs to work the fields, so they find the poor and they gave, give them uh, the vineyards and the fields. Now think about all of the predictions that God had made through his prophet about the fall of Jerusalem. I think I've listed them in your outline. Right there, all true Right? Disaster would come from the north. Chapter 1, Babylon. Jerusalem would be surrounded and besieged. Chapter 4, a strange foreign nation would attack and devour them. Chapter 5, there would be famine in the land. Chapter 14, death would enter the city. Chapter 15, the city would be burned. Chapter 21, the land would be laid waste. Chapter 25, Zedekiah would see Nebuchadnezzar face to face and be taken to Babylon. Chapter 32, and the people as well would be taken into exile. Chapter 13, it all happens 
It all comes to pass. So where is our prophet, Jeremiah, this whole time? Well, he's still sitting in captivity when we see him again. The rest of the chapter discusses how he, the prophet, and his friend are saved. So let's read the rest of this chapter. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him, look after him well, and do him no harm, but deal with him as he tells you. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, uh, and then a few other guys, and all the chief officers of the king of Babylon sent and took Jeremiah from the court of the guard. They entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. So he lived among the people. Remember Gedaliah, he's coming back next week. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the guard. Go and say to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will fulfill my words against this city for harm and not for good, and they shall be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely save you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war, because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. So Babylon decides to reward Jeremiah, most likely for being on their side, right? Uh, Because he was the voice saying to the people, give in to Babylon, surrender, and accept God's discipline. He wasn't necessarily on Babylon's side, right? He was on God's side, but that just happened to align him with the captors in this case. So they give him freedom. Now, what a contrast to how Jeremiah's own people, God's people, treated him, right? They've tried to kill him. They've kept him in prison. And here, the pagan King treats him with kindness and assigns someone to look after him and really take his orders. But there's someone else besides Jeremiah who has been faithful through, during the siege that the text comes back to. Ebed Melech. We met him in the text last week. You remember, he's the guy who saved Jeremiah's life when he was left in the cistern to die. And now he's rewarded for it. His brave act of rescuing the hated prophet is interpreted as an act of faith in God. The text says that he is Ethiopian. He's not an Israelite. He's a a Gentile, right, from Africa. Philip Jenkins notes that In 1900, only 10 million Christians lived in Africa. But by the year 2000, there were 360 million Christians, which was 100 million more than are in the U.S. And the prediction is that while the U.S. Christian population will probably stay relatively flat, there could be 630 million Christians in Africa by the year 2025. 
That's astounding. Ebed Melech is a reminder of what global Christianity would look like then and now, right? That it wouldn't just stay with the Jews, which is the, the progress of redemptive history, that it would go to all people, all tribes and tongues and nation, and even today around the globe. Ebed Melech also serves as the great contrast to the king. We see, we see contrasts like this all through the Bible, right? One man believes God and is greatly rewarded for his belief, and someone else in that same situation, at the same time, another man uh, denies and defies God and dears, pays dearly for it. So you have Abraham and Lot. You have Joseph and his brothers, Moses and Pharaoh, David and Absalom, the two thieves on the cross, and here, Ebed-Melech and Zedekiah. Eugene Peterson discusses Zedekiah's character in his book, Run with the Horses, and calls him a marshmallow because he received impressions from anyone who pushed hard enough. Occasionally, he would consult and even listen to Jeremiah, but usually he was swayed by his advisors who thought that they could get rid of the Babylonian threat, and so he would change his mind and not listen to the prophets. He fit into whatever plans stronger people had for him. It's probably why Nebuchadnezzar put him on the throne in the first place, right? He thought he could control him. He didn't count on his being swayed by others who wanted to resist and fight. Essentially, Zedekiah has no backbone. You couldn't count on him for anything, good or bad. And so Ebed-Melech is that contrast, the opposite, along with Jeremiah. But here, we, you know, we've, he found out when Jeremiah had been thrown into a cistern, and he marched straight to the king and got the supplies that he needed and went and rescued. Right? He didn't sit around debating it. He didn't take a poll. He knew that that's what needed to happen. He set his course had courage, and he saved Jeremiah. And in turn, God promised that he would be safe during the fall of the city, that his life would be his prize, his reward. So there's a real question we should take from this, of whether we will stand for what's right and be courageous in our convictions, or whether we will be swayed by the loudest voices regardless of whether it's right or wrong, right? Will you be a marshmallow like Zedekiah or a person of courage and conviction like Ebed-Melech? It's always going to be easier to listen to the crowd and go along with what they say. Not stick out so that no one will criticize you. It's hard to act on godly convictions when you can be criticized or persecuted for it. Stop me if you've heard this one before. I can't remember if I've told it in a sermon or a youth group talk or where, but uh, my first job outside after college, not uh, 
full time, but it's kind of a summer job. I worked for State Farm and I was assessing property values. And so the first day on the job, I got there, found out where I was supposed to go, and they kind of trained you what you were doing. And so I went out in the morning with my partner, and we assessed a bunch of houses, and then we met the rest of the team, uh, everybody else that was assessing at Burger King. So we sat, had lunch with everybody, and an hour, hour and a half goes by, two hours. I'm like, uh, what time do you guys go back out? Don't worry about it. Let's just sit here and talk, and, you know, we'll just all turn in the same number of houses, and it'll be fine. Wasn't resting well with me. I didn't do anything about the, the first day. The second day, same thing happens. We made it a different restaurant. About an hour, 15 minutes, I'm, okay, I guess nobody else is going out. I'm, I'm going to go measure some houses. Assess. I just was brought up with that kind of work ethic. Oh, man, they did not like that. They were, they were going to get shown up if I, I came and I had more houses assessed than they did consistently. I had to make a decision, make a stand there. Acting, and I don't always do that, trust me, but acting on your convictions is a real test of whether you want to please men or please God. Right? It may not always carry the weight of a city. It probably doesn't, like it did with Zedekiah. But it may carry the weight of your job, or of a company, or of a class, a school, a church, certainly your family. Let's be people of conviction. The other major problem with Zedekiah, besides his character, is that he thought he could run and escape when judgment came, right? He ignored the real answer that Jeremiah gave him that would have saved him from the worst of the damage that the Babylonians were going to inflict. And again, this is where we need to look at ourselves and ask the hard question, when death and judgment come for me to this world, what is my plan? Can I ignore God's word and still escape? 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4 says, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. What's he saying? What does that mean? That people are in denial that God will ever end the world or that God will judge people. No one knows when the day of judgment will come except the Father, right? But when it does, it will be as sure as the destruction of Jerusalem. You can assume it's not going to happen as much as you want, but the Bible says that it will surely happen. Acts 17.31 says that God has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Philip Ryken, 
brings us back to Zedekiah. Like Zedekiah, many people hope to escape the day of judgment. They doubt the personal return of Jesus Christ to judge the world. They hope that the wrath of God has been exaggerated. They deny the existence of hell. They think they are good enough to get to heaven. They expect to have time to slip out the garden door and run for dear life. Well, Jeremiah 39 stands as a warning against every naive hope of escaping the judgment to come. The wisest course would be to figure out if you are going to be among the group that God commends and brings into heaven for all eternity, or if you are going to be found among those that God condemns and sends into an eternity of hell separated from him. Good news. You don't have to achieve a bunch of things or attain this high level of righteousness to know whether you're going to heaven with the Lord. There will be one thing that God looks at when you die and stand before him for judgment. Are your sins still with you and condemn you in his sight? Or have you given your sins to someone else who can pay for them? Only one person can do that. Jesus Christ who died on a cross to take the sins of his people and give his perfect record of righteousness to them. And so I say, put your trust in him. Turn your life over to Jesus to follow him. And you will hear words like Ebed Melech heard in verses 17 and 18. I will deliver you on that day. And you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid, for I will surely save you. And you shall not fall by the sword. You shall have your life as a prize of war because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. Jesus saves us in God's sight. We need to know for sure that we love him, that we follow him, that he has saved our lives. And all of those who know that they will be saved because because they put their trust in him, said, amen. Take a moment to pray, and then I'll close us, and we'll sing our final prayer, our final song. This text, thank you for your word. That is true, that endures. The book of Jeremiah, as we've studied, and what felt like relentless prophecies, predictions ahead of judgment have come. Thank you that there were people that trusted you in the midst of all that, that believed your word and that were saved and looked on with favor. But we see also that there were people that didn't trust you, that didn't say, didn't follow what you said, and they paid dearly for it. God, remind us. It's easy to just get caught up in life. But the end is someday. Each of us will die or you will bring the world to a close. 
Either way, we stand before you with our record of sin. And you look upon us as you will look upon all people everywhere for all times. And look to see if you need to judge their sin. Lord, Lord, they are your people through Christ. Give us an urgency to share Christ with people as well as to confirm it in our own hearts and those around us in our families. Thank you for a church full of believers that have put their faith in Christ. May we disciple and teach and encourage those who have not. Give us a passion for your word and a surety about these things. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's close our song. The morning with to the only God. Verses in Second Peter chapter 3. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and goodness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.